to you, Almighty One. We thank you, O Father, for the privilege, for the honor, for the wonder, for the majesty. We have no words that come close. And now, Father, as we come to listen, to hear, to understand, guide us in this time, we ask. Draw us near into what you are saying, what you are speaking, how you are moving in this city, in this place, in this nation. We want to be attentive, to hear, to know. Speak, O Lord, we ask. Be with Alistair now as he comes to share and to guide. In your mighty and holy name. So it's been a while since we looked at 1 Corinthians, and uh, that's okay because we've done other things in between, and because 1 Corinthians is a book uh, that, that falls into sections, um, and, and it's perfectly possible to take uh, the sections one by one uh, and not actually, uh, so we can kind of stop start a little bit with 1 Corinthians. Um, so we're going to, oh, this week and next week, we're going to look at chapter 7, and then we'll be, uh, the week after that, um, doing something different, and then it's Advent. So we're going to spend two weeks on chapter 7, which actually, I'll confess it right now, is biting off probably more than I can chew, because chapter 7 is chock full of a lot of stuff. So this week we're thinking about, about uh, marriage, and next week we're thinking about singleness, okay? Because that's what Paul was talking to uh, the Corinthian church about. We'll do a wee recap on the church at Corinth in just a wee minute, but let's uh, read the, 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 the Bible first. And so the passage is 1 Corinthians 7, and we're going to read up to verse 24. So quite a lot in it. Let's hear God's Word. Now for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body but yields it to her husband in the same way the husband does not have authority over his own body but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all of you were as I am, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Now to the unmarried and the widows I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do, but if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and a husband must not divorce his wife. To the rest I say this, 
not I, to the rest I say this, I, not the Lord. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or the sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Nevertheless, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them, just as God has called them. This is the rule I laid down in all the churches. Was a man already circumcised when he was called? He should not become uncircumcised. Was a man uncircumcised when he was called? He should not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's commands is what counts. Each person should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you. Although if you can gain your freedom, do so. For the one who was a slave when called to faith in the Lord is the Lord's freed person. Similarly, the one who was free when called is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of human beings. Brothers and sisters, each person as responsible to God should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. Amen. May God give us understanding of His Word. There is a massive amount in those 24 verses, and I'll tell you now that I'm not going to do justice to them, and we may come back to them uh, in the, probably in the new year and uh, have a, a kind of bit-by-bit bit look. But I wanted just to look at this chapter uh, and to look at it um, as, a, as a kind of counterbalance, because the rest of chapter 7 uh, that goes on from there is a whole section which is headed, certainly in the NIV, concerning the unmarried. So, there's a whole section on, on singleness, uh, affirming the place and the power of singleness, and uh, we're going to hear about that next Sunday. Lynn Patterson, actually, who is the head of Scripture Union Scotland, is, uh, is going to come and, and speak on that theme. What did I say? Scripture Union? Oh, my goodness. Tear Fund. Sorry. Sorry, one of those moments. Lynn Patterson, who is the head of Tear Fund Scotland, Fiona's former boss, is coming to speak to us uh, next Sunday on that. No idea where that came from. Anyway, okay. So, we're going to look at an overview uh, and this is Remembrance Sunday, and I kind of got to thinking, what on earth does this chapter, if anything, have to do with remembrance? Now, I know that, uh, you know, because we meet at 12.30 and uh, there's a, a, a commemoration in, in George Square for Remembrance Sunday that the kind of official minute silence both uh, yesterday and today have taken place uh, at a different time and before we began to gather. But I got to thinking about uh, Paul and, and remembrance and this passage and thinking, actually, you have to understand where Paul was coming from to get your head around much of what he teaches and what he can, includes in this passage. Let me remind you that the church in Corinth was a church in a port city 
busy city with lots of trading routes crossing east to west and north to south. It was a city that had certainly in its former years had a certain reputation. It used to have uh, a massive temple there to the goddess Aphrodite with, I think there were a thousand shrine prostitutes there. It was a port city, and therefore it was a city where uh, sexual license was not uncommon, both in its former uh, years. It was destroyed and and then rebuilt a hundred years later, but inevitably something of that culture and something of that world would have reasserted itself. And we already know, and it's been a while since we looked at chapter 6, and some of, you, some of you weren't here, that Paul is speaking to a church that is drawn from every part of the city, a, a bit like ours here, a gathering of people from all sorts of different backgrounds, all sorts of different experiences, some rich, some poor, some slaves, some free. And so there was this cross-fertilization of uh, cultures and personalities and backgrounds in this church. And and the challenge of the Christian gospel, the challenge of the gospel of Jesus is the challenge that Jesus wants to bring one people together out of diverse backgrounds. The glorious, triumphant picture of the church that Jesus puts before us is the picture of a body of people who, at a human level, may have very little in common. And that's the challenge of church. That's the biggest challenge. The biggest challenge is to love those with whom you maybe have very little in common, or maybe don't get on with all that well. It's the challenge to look out for the other person and put them first. And so, the picture that we have in Revelation of the church is of a vast number of people that no one could count, it says, gathered from every nation and tribe and tongue and people, and yet all brought together as one in Jesus Christ. Lots of people say, you know, I I can be a much better Christian if I don't go to church. I can be a much better Christian if it wasn't for other Christians. Well, of course, duh, because that's like, you know, I don't know. I'm trying to think of a, a, a comparison but being, being a, a Christian without the body of Christ is, is kind of meaningless. You know, it's like being that one random fork or spoon or teaspoon that, you know, belongs in the cutlery drawer. It's just got separated. It has no function. You don't quite know where it's come from. You don't know if it's clean, and you're not sure you want to use it. God places us in, the, in, a, in a church with people and challenges us to be a sign of love that trumps hate, of unity that overcomes division and separation and the thousand barriers that we erect between one another. And so, the gospel is a gospel of reconciliation. It's a gospel that calls us to tough it out with people whether we can be bothered or not. It's a gospel that calls us to make community and family with one another, and it's a gospel that calls us to focus our energies on living for the kingdom. And Paul was absolutely passionate about that, and there was a huge challenge for this church. They came out of a background that was culturally diverse. 
They came out of a, a, a church, or sorry, a, a civic community that was probably as libertarian as, as ours is today. They came out of a world where people bought and sold goods and money was king, where uh, sex was no doubt trafficked and up for sale. And all the values that obsess our world today would have been right there in a different, in a different expression, in a different culture in Greece all those years ago. So, you know, there's not a whole lot of difference. And so, Paul is talking to a church that is coming together out of that background. He's already addressed with them the issue of, of sexual immorality, which had crept into the church, and they were kind of giving the nod to it, saying, yeah, no, this is fine. It's okay if a guy is his father's wife, maybe his stepmother. And Paul's like, are you crazy? Because often we just pick up the values of the world that we're part of, and we think, well, that's what everyone does, right? But the challenge of living for Jesus is the challenge to live according to what He calls us to. And so Paul, who was himself a single man, and, and you, can hear, uh, you, you can hear him quite explicitly talking and declaring there his uh, preference for people to be single, as I am, as a good and a positive thing, and it is, and we'll come on to that. But it's not the way of the world. So we have to walk a careful course in reading this passage. Because on the one hand, Paul is uh, talking about, uh, about marriage, and he's talking about marriage relationships, and effectively he's, he's passing on a message that probably most of us, if, if you're uh, thinking and looking or hoping that you will be married, don't want to hear. He's saying, do you know what? Best choice not to be married, if that's your calling. If that's your calling. And immediately there's a bunch of people in here quietly praying, Lord, please let that not be my calling. <laughs> but we don't always pause to take seriously what he's saying, and, and, uh, and that's why we're going to focus on that next week. Paul thought Jesus was coming back pretty soon. And Paul lived and taught and ministered as someone for whom the clock was ticking. And he had to reach as many people as quickly as possible. And he had a goal that he felt passionately called to, which was to take the gospel to the Gentiles and to see it spread as thoroughly and as far as it possibly could. He was a man quite literally on a mission, on several missions, in fact. And Paul was emphatic that he wanted nothing to keep him back from that focus because as he believed, the time was short. It was within living memory that Jesus had ascended from the Mount of Olives not long after having talked about his return, and there was an angel there two angels standing saying, this Jesus will return in the same way you've seen him go. And so the early Christians lived in the expectation that Jesus was, was going to be gone for five years maybe. Maybe initially they just thought a few weeks, a year, two years that stretched to five, then ten. 
and then maybe 20, 30. But all the time they're thinking Jesus is coming back. They're living with a memory of that as a reality, and they've got a job to do and a job to get on with. And so they're focused on the task. I got you to think earlier on about stuff you got up to with best friends. And I know from having spent 24 years in the military community, the kind of stuff that, that guys and girls in the forces get up to uh, just uh, living on the patch in peacetime, in training, in exercises, on ships, on submarines, and so on. The camaraderie, the life, the relationships are built and nurtured through folks getting up to stuff. You know, and I hear legion stories of just, especially Marines, they're the worst, man. Just pranking one another and getting up to things. But once it's a matter of war, and once you actually go to battle, the same guys that you've maybe pranked or got up to stuff with in the same way you did at school are the people that you need to depend on for your survival. They're the people that you need to know have got your back and you need to have their back because this is life and death stuff now. And so you need to rely on them and they on you. And obviously, many, many people today and yesterday will have thought about, remembered, and focused on those who, despite others having their back and looking out for them, didn't make it and didn't come home, whether in recent conflicts or in more distant conflicts in the First and Second World Wars of the last century. And we remember those people who lost their lives in conflict and gave their lives. And that sacrifice was given in the context of the single-minded pursuit of the goal. Now, whether the goal that they were involved in was politically or globally defensible or correct, on the ground, these guys were following orders and going where they were sent, and some of them not coming back or coming back maimed and injured. And it simply is the nature of armed conflict that there can be no distraction, no taking your eyes off what's important for the reason for being there. One single objective that overruled all of the others. So, as we read these words, which may seem like Paul is throwing an absolute, not just a bucket, but a vat of cold water over marriage and so on, we need to understand where he's coming from. He's a man on a mission, the time is short, and he is passionate about having a focus for Jesus. But how does it challenge us then? I mean, there's a lot in here. And there's an irony, actually, that we read these words which begin. Now, for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. And, you know, immediately you've lost all the blokes in the room. What does he mean and why is he saying that? Because Paul is talking about a singleness of focus. And he's talking about keeping your eye on the main thing. There's an irony that this passage of Scripture, which is used 
that, or the, the passage of Scripture that is used at most weddings, which is what? 1 Corinthians 13, comes from this letter that Paul wrote, in which actually in this earlier chapter, he's advocating singleness and saying, well, okay, if you do marry, recognize and ask yourselves, what is your marriage going to look like in terms of offering it to the Lord? How are you going to live or be married in such a way? And so, Paul addresses the subject of marriage from this perspective that we rarely hear preached or recommended or encouraged or even modeled in the church, because often in the church, we present marriage as the norm and singleness as the exception, because that's the way of the world. And there's a, an, a, a, an, an instinct, a creation instinct in us, obviously, to enter into relationship and to seek a partner and to uh, commit to that partner in public and to have children and so on. But we tend to think of the idea of being single as uh, a disadvantage, and yet Paul says it's an advantage, whilst marriage can be a distraction. He even seems to suggest that marriage be a second best option for the Christian. Now, on the one hand, he's writing from his own perspective, with his own passion, with his own singleness and energy. But on the other hand, he's writing commands, and some of them he says, this is from the Lord, not just me. So, how then are we to hear? So, let's take a little time, and I apologize because this is a, a whistle-stop tour over some uh, very important and uh, significant subjects that need and deserve deeper and more thorough treatment. And as I say, it would be useful to come back to them. So he starts off then by saying, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each wife with her own, own husband and so on. So is Paul a killjoy? Is Paul just down on a marriage, down on the marriage relationship? No. But what he is seeing and recognizing is that within uh, a marriage relationship, it's important that the partners relate to one another and that the marriage is brought to the Lord. And actually, what we read here probably has quite an interesting and important contemporary ring to it, because there's an argument that says that in our world and in today's culture, we have made a God of sex and sexuality, and the right to have and be in a sexual relationship is a non-negotiable right. It's the argument and the assumption that has made much of the same-sex debate appear so persuasive. If a person, by virtue of their sexuality, is forbidden from marrying according to the teaching of Jesus or the teaching of the Bible, are they not then being denied a fundamental part of what it is to be human? 
In other words, there's a, there's, a, there's a narrative, there's a story, an understanding in our society that says, unless you're an active sexual being, you're not a proper or a full or a fulfilled human being at all. And yet, Paul says the opposite. And Paul recognizes the value and the place and the importance of a marriage relationship. And when he's writing to the church in Ephesus, he will write there of the balance of husband and wife, male-female relationships, and the importance of husbands loving their wives and wives uh, respecting and honoring their husbands and so on. But here, Paul and is speaking to our society and is speaking to our society and saying, do you know what? As beautiful, as important, as necessary, as, as a sexual relationship and a marriage relationship is and are, they're not the be-all and end-all that society wants to make them. They're not the be-all and end-all that society wants to make them. And that actually Paul recognizes that the passion and the commitment and the drive and the energy and so on that we have within us that may be expressed sexually can just as easily and readily be invested in serving the Lord. And so Paul appears to be on a downer here, and he appears because he's speaking from his own worldview and his own perspective, but he's recognizing and speaking to this particular church and saying, guys, there's a place and an important place, and talking about the importance of making sure that within a marriage relationship, there is a, a principle of mutuality he describes it as ownership. I find it really interesting that in a, in a passage where Paul is talking, uh, where, where Paul is so often regarded as being uh, down on women, he talks about the husband not having authority over his own body, but yielding it to his wife in the same way as he says the wife not ha does not have authority over her body, but yields it to her husband. Paul's talking about mutuality. Paul's talking in a patriarchal society about men and women sharing together. Paul's talking about the place and the importance in a society that was rife with immorality of making sure that sexual energy be appropriately framed within a marriage relationship before God. And so he talks about the importance and affirms the importance of the sexual relationship within marriage. But he does it, and this is where the language clearly is coming from his emphasis. I say this as a concession, not a command. I wish all men were as I am. Jesus, in Matthew's gospel, was asked about marriage and divorce and so on. And Jesus talked about divorce, and then he said, the disciples said, if this is the situation between a husband and wife, it is better not to marry. And Jesus replied, not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. 
For there are eunuchs, and I think it's an unfortunate word. There are eunuchs who were born that way. There are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others. And there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. In other words, there are those who are born for whom a marriage relationship or a sexual relationship is, is not going to be part of their story. And that's the way they were made. And that's okay. There are those who have been made that way, actual eunuchs. There were those who, we read of one in, in, in the book of Acts. And there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. And that's Paul. One who recognizes that his calling to singleness is for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. And so Paul's focus then is on prioritizing the kingdom of God, is on recognizing the dynamism and the energy and the excitement and the life and the fullness that he knew in his relationship with God in pursuing Jesus and going after the things of the kingdom and recognizes that that did not leave him disappointed in any way. But equally, he recognizes the place and the importance of marriage as a place of Christian witness, as a place of togetherness, as a place of serving together, a place where intimacy and relationship are to be nurtured and worked at and worked through. And so he goes on and speaks to the unmarried and says, as I've already said, it's good to be single. If marriage is for you, then get married. Better to be married than to burn with passion. God doesn't want you to live in a frustrated, resentful attitude because your calling is to be married. So be married. Express your sexuality in that context if that's what God's calling you to. And then he speaks to the married and speaks to the challenges of being married because we know how easily and how readily society paints and portrays relationship as the answer to all your problems. If I were just in relationship with somebody else, my world would be perfect. My, uh, everything would be complete. There's a little verse in, in Deuteronomy that most married couples, if they don't know it, they find it pretty quickly, which talks about don't send a man to war in the first year of marriage, recognizing that the first year of marriage can be the hardest year of marriage in many ways. That whole adjusting, that whole coming to terms with that relationship. And so he says... I give this command, not I, but the Lord, and speaks there about the place and the importance for believers where possible and as far as possible to work at it and to try to keep it together. A wife must not separate from her husband, and this is painful territory because marriage is not easy. Marriage takes work and investment and effort. And Paul recognizes 
which is why he advocates for people to consider not being married as a legitimate option and not a second best one, but actually a choice or a calling that is full of life, that is full of opportunity. But he recognizes as well that for those in a marriage relationship, then there is a place and a joy, but a calling to work at it. And so he continues about the challenge of somebody who's become a believer but is living with somebody who is not a believer and recognizes in that the challenge and the struggle, and I have encountered many such couples over the years where one is a believer and the other is not. And how do you balance your loyalty and your commitment to working through that marriage relationship with the fact that you're in a marriage relationship with someone who doesn't share the same values as you? Now, it's not impossible, and it doesn't mean that it can't be worked out or worked through. But he just, uh, Paul recognizes the particular challenges and the particular delicacy and balance of uh, that kind of situation. And so he says to the believer, don't separate. Don't allow the church or the gospel or the kingdom to be brought into disrepute because you use the name of Jesus as an opportunity to hurt and wound someone by walking away from the marriage commitment that you've made. But if the unbeliever should leave, let it be so. The brother or the sister is not bound in such circumstances. You know, this is difficult territory. It's challenging territory. Because for everything that Paul writes here, there's immediately questions and exceptions and personal situations that are maybe painful historically or maybe painful currently. You know, Jesus, when he gave that teaching about marriage and, and divorce, did so recognizing the fallenness and the brokenness of humankind and of how it is often in our closest relationships that we are hurt, that we disappoint, that we let others down, or that we ourselves are let down. And every one of us, in one respect or another, in this arena, whether in the arena of marriage or in singleness, may know challenge and struggle painful history or a difficult present or an anxiety about the future. Paul is trying to bring to this church a word that will affirm the zeal of those who might think in a society like Corinth that was sex-obsessed that it was possible to be a believer outside of a relationship and say, do you know what? You can absolutely go for it, and don't consider that your life is second best. And if you are a believer and in a marriage relationship, then here are the boundaries to make it work or to work at it in order that your marriage can be a gift to God and a means whereby God can bless you and make you a blessing, make you a sign in the community of what it means to work through when things are difficult or tough. 
to work through when things are going well and when they aren't going well. How to invest in the relationship in order to preserve it from attack so that whether married or single, your relationship status is an offering to God. So that's the challenge, I suppose, for us as we read this passage. What does it look like for us to give our relationship status to God? Whether in terms of how we work through the relationship within a marriage and what that looks like in terms of a sexual relationship, in terms of prayer life, in terms of of, uh, toughing it out when the going is difficult, in terms of making the good stuff be available to God and to others so that your uh, marriage or your relationship, your marriage relationship is, is in some respects an open door to the kingdom of God for others to see and to benefit from. And so Paul invites all of us whatever place we're in, to ask ourselves as we remember today, as we remember those who were in a very different arena of battle, and some came back and some lost their lives and some were injured. But all of that was done because they had a focus on a particular goal, an earthly kingdom that they wanted to defend And the rights and wrongs of that are open to us to consider. But the reality on the ground is that these guys and girls were caught up in a conflict. And we're in a world in which there is a conflict. We are called to be a people who are part of the kingdom of God and the advancing reign and rule of Jesus Christ. And there are many uh, voices in our ears that will tell us, if it feels good, do it. That will tell us that we can have whatever we want because those were the voices that played out in Corinth as well. There will be many voices around that will tell us other things that are contrary to Jesus' way for this most intimate part of our lives and lifestyles. And the challenge for us is, how do we give who we are in every respect, body, mind, and spirit, including our sexuality? How do we give that and live that out to Jesus? How do we keep our focus on the kingdom? And part of that for some will be, or or for some that focus will be on giving themselves energetically out with a one-on-one relationship. And for others, it will be giving themselves in that and within that and working that out there as well. So we'll return to this subject next week. I'm aware that reading and speaking about this passage potentially stirs up a a pastoral hornet's nest, (laughs) depending on where people are and what the struggles are. And you know that this week, as every week, we have opportunity, if you would like, Uh, just us to pray with you about anything that has come up or that has troubled you, or if you want to chat, please come and speak. But let's pray just now. 
Loving Father, we recognize in our society where uh, broken relationships abound and so many people carry the hurt and the scars of things that have not worked or those who carry a sense perhaps of disappointment or who feel that others regard them in some way as less. Lord, our world sets sexuality so often on such a high pedestal. But Lord, you call us into relationship with you. You call us to know you. You call us to find true intimacy with you in your presence. You call us to know you and to enter into a loving relationship that is fulfilling and from which we in turn can give of ourselves to other people. You call us, Lord, to fix our eyes upon Jesus and to let everything beyond that and from that flow out of that first relationship. So, Lord, in whatever place we are or have been, Lord, may we offer ourselves first and foremost to you and may all our other relationships flow out of that place. And Lord, as we uh, go into another week, may we have a focus in our lives and in our living that reminds us that just as earthly soldiers went to war in order to fight a good fight, so you send us back out into the, the conflict, the clash between your kingdom and the kingdoms of this world. So, Lord, may we keep our focus on you and on those that you send us to, to love you with heart and soul and mind and strength and to love our neighbor as ourselves. And so we pray for those who this day remember. We pray for those who this day remember the ones that they went to fight with and who did not come back. We pray for those who this day remember the children that they lost or the relative. We pray for those who, because of what they sustained in war, live with injuries and disability as a permanent reminder of that experience. We pray, Lord, for those who, having served their country, are now perhaps homeless or unemployed or struggling for survival, because there are many. We pray for those who seek to help and support ex-servicemen and women and ask that you renew their compassion and their zeal in that task. So hear us as we pray. And all these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We're just going to take some time now to respond to that. Um,